Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. So glad you're here. Uh, welcome to the month of May. Hope that uh, you're enjoying this, uh, this day. It looks beautiful out there. If you've joined us online this morning, welcome to you. We're so glad you've chosen to join us and we're thrilled you're with us today. Welcome. Well, we're in chapter 13 of the story. Could I just remind you about the five movements of the Bible? If you can remember this, you got the whole outline of the scripture. Number one is paradise, a place called Eden. This is where God placed the first humans, Adam and Eve, in this pristine environment. We see revealed there God's original design and intent, God's ultimate vision for humanity, which is to spend eternity with us in warm and loving community. Uh, Adam and Eve rejected God's vision. And so God had to make a way, and he's decided to make a way to restore himself to relationship with us, and he decided to do that through a family. So he called Abraham, and so we have the story of Israel, and we're in the middle of that story right now. We're, we're, we're talking about the monarchs, the period of the kings. Today we'll talk about King Solomon. Then the New Testament will unfold. It's the story of Jesus, the story of the early church, the people who followed Jesus, and then the final, the fifth movement is back to paradise, a place called heaven, where God will fulfill his ultimate vision to spend eternity in intimate fellowship with you and me. That's good news. God's determined to do that, to have a people, to have a family close to him. So I hope you're encouraged by that. Today's chapter 13, this is King Solomon. You remember the first king was Saul, and then came David. We've talked about about David a couple of weeks, and now today King Solomon. Let me begin with this. There's a new technique, relatively new technique, that we see in literature and oftentimes in moving making that's called reverse chronology. Reverse chronology is just what it says. It's like turning the timeline upside down, reversing it. So, for example, you go into a movie theater, and the first scene of the movie kind of throws you off. And the reason, the reason it throws you back is because it's, it's this very poignant or emotion-filled or dramatic, you know, there may be some violence or lots of, lots of activity. So this big deal, this big event is happening. And you're viewing it and you're sitting there as a moviegoer going, what is going on? What does this mean? How could this possibly happen at the beginning of the movie? And then you realize as soon as that scene is passed that what the producer has done is that he's given you the last scene first. And then the rest of the movie is just filling in the blanks, telling the story of how you get to that kind of conclusion. This is, this is how this, this story is going to end. Let's tell you, let, let us show you now how it all happened. And so you pick up on it that way. We can think in similar terms now I get, I get, about King Solomon as he makes a final statement to the world just before he dies. So this is like the last scene of King Solomon's life, and he makes a very important statement. Let's begin there and then tell the story. You ready? It's on Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, and this is what he says. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God, keep the commandments. This is the duty. 
Solomon is concluding his life. He said, look, this is ultimately what matters. In summary, the most important thing I can say to you at the end of my life is fear God, keep his commandments. If you wanna, if you wanna maintain your sense of purpose, your sense of destiny, you want to make your one and only life count. All of us have one and only one life. And if you want to make that count, then do this. Fear God, obey his commands. And so this is Solomon's word to us. Now let me say a bit about Solomon. Solomon is a king who had it all. When you think about someone who has it all, you think about people who are very popular, folks who are very uh, affluent, people who are very attractive, very gifted. Uh, Solomon was in that category. He's like five stars in every category. He had it all. Uh, he's very popular. Probably his picture was on the cover of GQ magazine. Uh, Forbes and Fortune magazines featured him from time to time. He's often quoted in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. He was named Time magazine's person of the year five years consecutively. That's historic. That's amazing. Pass it on, Solomon. Did you notice? He was more popular than Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, Brad Pitt. People followed him on social media by the multiplied millions. Very, very popular. He's the rock star of his day. He was the Hebrew idol, this Solomon. He had it all, and let me just summarize. He had it all, and all of it spiraled down all the way to the ground. Not only was that unfortunate for his own life, but it was unfortunate for the nation of Israel as well because he took the nation right along with him all the way into, into division and ultimately into exile. Let's unpack his life for just a moment. We've already, we already know how it ends. Let's talk about the beginning, his early years. King David has declared that Solomon, his son, is going to be the next king. Solomon is about 19 or 20 years old at the time. And David leaves the nation to him, and it's in good condition. He's defeated all of his enemies. It's a time of peace. You can expect peace and prosperity for the next generation. So when Solomon inherits the kingdom, he has a large army, and he has a ton of wealth. He's, he's set up pretty nicely. So right off the bat, then, young Solomon is faced with a decision from the Lord. This appears in the storybook on page 176. It's 1 Kings chapter 3. And look at this episode. This is very profound. I'll put it on the screen. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. Solomon offered a 1,000 burnt offerings on that altar. Now, this is just a little window into Solomon. He goes big or he goes home. So it's a 1,000 burnt offerings, not just a handful. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said... God said to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Let your imagination run with this one. You know it's God. Not, that, that's not in question. God says in a dream state, but he knows this is God speaking to him. And God says to Solomon, I will give you anything you ask me. Are, is your imagination going? What would you ask for? What would you ask for? Solomon says, uh, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David. He was faithful, righteous, upright. 
you continue to show great kindness to him and you've given him a son to sit on the throne. Now, Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father, David, but I'm only a child. I don't know what I'm doing. Solomon basically said, look, Lord, I'm young and stupid. How am I supposed to know what I'm doing? And so he said, I need help. So this is what he asked God for. Verse nine, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So Solomon asks for wisdom. He asks for a discerning heart so that he can rule the people with justice. And the Lord was pleased with Solomon. And so God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth or for yourself or the death of your enemies, but for discernment, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. So we can conclude from this that Solomon now has been gifted by God with this ability to discern and, and to understand in a wise way the circumstances of the world. And so he not only receives this wisdom, but God goes on to say, moreover, I'm going to give you what you've not asked for both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime, you'll have no equal. And if you walk in obedience and my decrees like your father David did, I'll give you a long life. So he asks for wisdom. God's so pleased with the, with, with the request that he said, not only am I going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you honor and wealth and a long life. Somebody said it's a pretty good day. That's a pretty good day right there. Can you imagine him walking out of the bed chambers in the morning? Some attendants say, you know, your majesty, how did, how did you rest? He said, I had a pretty good night. Things are looking up. I think it's going to be a good day. <laughs> Amazing. This is, a, this is a, a remarkable encounter. So Solomon asks for wisdom. The, the word for wisdom in the Old Testament is a word called hakma. Hakma. It's like you're coughing up something. Hakma. The, the, the word for wisdom in the New Testament Greek is the word Sophia. Many people have called their daughter Sophia. Maybe you know someone named Sophia. Some of you right now, uh, within the sound of my voice, certainly today, you will have a baby this year, a little baby girl. And you could be the first to call her Hakma. <laughs> what do you think? It could catch on, maybe. Oh, there's a little Hakma. So Solomon's asking for biblical wisdom. Let's take a shot at defining biblical wisdom. Let me put this on the screen. The skill to consistently apply common sense with a discerning spirit, learn from experience or trusted mentors, filtered through the word and will of God, leading to optimal success. That covers a range of things there, doesn't it? Let's just leave that definition on the screen for a minute. First, let me just say wisdom is a skill. By that, I mean that wisdom is not just something you know, but something you do. And so knowing the right thing to do is one part of it, but actually doing it, that's where wisdom is practiced. So you need skill to practice the wisdom of God. The second thing is consistency. This is misunderstood in our world. The benefit comes through perpetually making good decisions day after day. It's like compounding interest and a lifetime of wise decisions produces great fruit. This is why you hear a man like Eugene Peterson coin the phrase, a long obedience in one direction. Or someone else would, might say, 
Uh, how you live your ordinary days is what determines whether you have special moments. So we learn, we learn, we learn the value of consistency. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it just follows. It's intuitive, isn't it? A person who makes a wise decision day after day, week after week, year after year, wise decisions, that that compounds into fruitfulness and success. You know, character compounds, wisdom compounds in a life where wisdom is practiced. And the common sense part, this is just a, this is just a understanding the circumstances well enough that you can sort out the issues and the options. And one of the ways you get common sense is by seeking wise counsel. The Bible teaches that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, that we select mentors in our lives to help us, to give us the perspective we may need. This is what, this is what wise people do. They find people who are trustworthy, have a track record of success, respectful, honorable, loving people, and you ask their opinion wise counsel. Let me just share this little anecdote. The younger you are, the younger you are in life, the more likely it will be that God will provide older people to counsel you and provide wisdom for you. And when you hear, you're an older person, you hear that, you go, well, of course, that makes, of course that's true. But when you're younger in today's culture, you don't know that's true. So I'm just, I'm saying heads up to young people. Because when surveys are taken of young people right now and they're asked the question, who do you rely on? Whose advice do you rely on to make important decisions in your life? Most young people in today's culture rely on other young people. It's another product, negative consequence, unintended consequence of social media. You can't shut it off. And so the people who are most likely to use social media on, a, on an ongoing basis are young people. And so young people are just constantly stimulating one another through social media about what they think the world should look like. And the last person, a young person, should look to for advice in a wise way as a mentor in life is another young person. The younger you are, the more likely it will be that God will provide an older person to provide wisdom for you. You can discard what I just said to your own peril. 50 years ago, you ask a, a young person, a teenage person, who do you listen to for advice? And they would say things like, quaint things like, my parents, my teachers, my coaches, my relatives, my pastor. None of those really register close to the top of the list in today's youth culture. It's pretty sobering. So heads up. Let me ask you this question. If I were to ask you today, describe to me the most important mentor in your life. Who, who the, who's the person that you lean on for, the, for God's advice in important moments of your decision making? Who would that person be? Do you have such a person? If no one's coming to mind right now, could I just urge you to start cultivating someone like that? Because if you're trying to go it alone, that's a mistake. I've, say, I've said this out loud many times. You know, you never use the word never. Listen to me. I never make a major decision in my life without wise counsel. I was born, but I wasn't born yesterday. I mean, you got you to pay attention. Because if you think you figured it out and you don't need any help, 
in the process, you're asking for it. So let me ask you this further question. If you have a person who's a mentor in your life, would I approve of that person? More importantly, would God approve of that person? Important questions. I have, I'm in a bit of a pickle right now in my own life. You know, we're talking about mentors. My spiritual father is in heaven. My natural father is in heaven. My best friend who was mentor-like is also in heaven. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in a kind of a, kind of a pickle. Because it's not easy for me to have my, you know, my, my fab five because they're all in heaven. They've all checked out on me. It's perfect. I still have my wife, although she's getting old. So I cleared that with her ahead of time. You think I'm in trouble. I'm not in trouble at all. I cleared it with her. I checked with her first. You're welcome. That's wisdom. That's common sense. All right, you're welcome. Solomon gets in this moment. Some of you recall this story, and two women, they're both prostitutes, they, they have a baby about the same time, they're living in, in the same house, and one of these women accidentally suffocates her baby. She steals the other's baby, claims for her own. The woman whose baby has been taken protests and takes it before Solomon for legal justice. The two women are there and the one living baby. They both, both of the women tell their story. Solomon, Solomon turns to his assistant, tells the assistant, pull out your sword, take this living baby, cut the baby in half, give each mother half of the baby. To which the woman whose baby is already dead agrees that this is a good solution. And to which the mother whose baby is alive but not in the hands of the wrong woman she falls down before Solomon and begs him not to have the baby killed. I would rather she keep my baby than for my baby to die. So it would be better for me if I did not have my baby to raise my baby just so the baby can live. And now Solomon in his wisdom knows exactly who the real mother is and delivers the baby into her hands. I wonder if this story gives us any insight for the option of adoption rather than abortion. Maybe you should think about that. So biblical wisdom is more than just simple common sense, as I've described. It's filtered through the word of God and the will of God. And, and in order to understand what that means, it's important for us to remember that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that's really good news for us. We wonder sometimes if God's ways are the best ways when we're going through some things. But it's true that God is higher and his perspective is greater and so his wisdom is more profound. And so from time to time, it's very important that we get his perspective on an important moment, crossroads moment, milestone moment in our lives. His ways are higher. And so we're thankful for that. And we, we receive his wisdom through his word and through wise counsel and through prayerful deliberation and through the circumstances that he orchestrates for us. And through all of this process, God reveals his will to us so that we can act in a wise way. 
I love, um, I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible. It's called The Message. And there's this wonderful passage that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth talking about offering wisdom to people in Corinth. And the paraphrase words it beautifully. And, and I, I want us to just think through this passage just for a moment. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is Eugene Peterson's The Message. And of course, Paul talking to the church at Corinth. And it says, we, of course, have plenty of wisdom to pass on to you once you get your feet on firm spiritual ground. But it's not popular wisdom, the fashionable wisdom of high-priced experts that will be out of date in a year or so. Now, I want you to just hear this in the context of 2022 pop culture and the, the constant droning on of voices political voices and social voices and, and social engineers and justice uh, uh, voices and all the, all the voices that clamor in our culture right now and, and find the application, the fashionable wisdom of high-priced experts that will be out of date in a year or so. God's wisdom is something mysterious that goes deep into the interior of his purposes you don't find it laying around on the surface. It's not the latest message, but more like the oldest. What God determined as the way to bring out his best in us long before we ever arrived on the scene. This is so profound. Now listen, listen to me. You know, most of the mores, the ethical practices in all kinds of categories in today's pop, pop culture, postmodern culture, post-Christian culture, most, most of these new standards, you know, that the social justice warriors are, are demanding are, are the new standards. You understand this wisdom, quote, wisdom, has been around here for about eight seconds of human history. Eight, maybe seven seconds. For seven seconds now, the definition of marriage has been different than it's been throughout history. It's popular, it's the latest, it's trendy, it's, a, it's the way culture's leaning, it's all of that, it's just not from God. It's just, it's just not the old wisdom. The wisdom that was here long before we arrived, long before someone else had a new idea about these things. There are some things that are true all the time have been, are, will be. So we got to be very careful about the sources that we refer to when we're seeking the wisdom of God. None of biblical wisdom as we try to define it includes popular opinion. Not on the list. Considerations. <laughs> Here's another example of Solomon's wisdom. It's found in Proverbs chapter 3. And he, this is the wisest man who's ever lived, according to God. This is why, no one will ever be like him before or since. This is the wisest man who's ever lived. He said, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. So here's a guy named Solomon, and he understands that being generous is what provokes the blessing of God. 
So he's the guy who comes up uh, and it's time to offer a burnt sacrifice to the Lord instead of doing one or two or 10 bulls, he does a thousand <laughs> because he, this boy's indulgent in every category. He, I mean, it's, it's go big or go home for him. And so he, he's, all, he's all in. And then he stands up and says, now listen, if you take the first portion of whatever crop or whatever income you have and you give it, you give it to God, that God will actually multiply that thing so that it ends up being more than what you started with. Now that's not common sense. Common sense says if you give away money before your bills are paid and before everything else, that at the end you'll have less money. If you give away what you have at the beginning, you'll have less at the end. That's common sense. That's like math. The problem, the problem is that it doesn't consider the God factor. The God factor. Because there's a God factor at work in all of this. So that God comes along and says, listen, if you'll, if you'll cast your bread on the water, it'll come back. If you sow seed, it'll create a harvest. Given it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over. Uh, given an obedient fashion in these ways, and God will open the windows of heaven for you so that he, he might pour out a blessing that you can't contain. So the Bible teaches that you can, you can live under the blessing and favor of God under an open heaven if you're generous. And the wisest man who's ever lived just came along. He said it this way, honor the Lord with your wealth, the first, the first fruits of your crops. And if you do that, your barns will be filled to overflowing. I mean, it's just like, it's a matter of fact because there is a God factor. This is hard for people because it's not common sense. It's not, it's not worldly understanding. This is kingdom. This is kingdom perspective. This is a spiritual reality. This is God making a promise to us that you, listen, you can live under the blessing and favor of God if you just open your hands. And you've heard me, you hear me go off on this all the time. And I've confessed that I personally and we corporately live under an open heaven. God just blesses us. You must be special. No, I'm just paying attention. I just recognize what, what God says and I try to do it. This is the skillful part of living a wise life. Not only knowing what to do, but to do it. I was just talking with our oldest son, Aaron, last week about this. He was upset because his tax, his taxes return, um, his tax preparer hadn't uh, gotten everything ready on time. So he had to, you know, file for a delay and so forth. And he was upset about that. And I said, what's the, what's the holdup? He said, well, uh, my, the accountant I hire is, is of a quality that he, that he handles uh, these very complex and exotic tax returns by, you know, people who are uber rich and it's very complicated. And so it takes more time and expertise to pull it off. He said, I had to hire him because I'm now in a tax bracket that requires some sophistication, but I'm not one of those, you know, really uber rich people. And so I'm like the, at the bottom of his list. And so I might, mine kept getting pushed off until, you know, the big shots got their stuff done. And, and so he said, I was frustrated about that. And I said, well, that's too bad. He said, well, I finally got him back. I said, well, how, 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 what was your tax liability last year? And he told me how much he paid in taxes. And I said, glory to God. That is amazing that you had to pay that many taxes last year. What a, I wish I had to pay that many taxes. 
wow, that's, I mean, it just shocked me. His tax liability was more than most of the people I know make in a year. And I said, that's, that's just stupid, have to pay that many taxes. <laughs> you sure are blessed. He said, how much do you think I gave to charitable contributions last year? And his mother guessed at it, and she, was, she didn't even come close. She said a number, and I laughed out loud. And he said, no, Mom. And then he, he, he named the number. Why his pastor does not send me a thank you card every year, I have no idea. I don't know if he just takes it for granted or he just assumes, you know, that people like my son know how to be generous just all by themselves without any training from their youth. Just a simple thank you, Reverend so-and-so. Maybe thank you so much would be nice. But no, you don't hear from these people. And I looked, I looked at Aaron and I said, well, you understand what this is all about, don't you? And he said, he said, I know it very well. I said, let's keep the flow going. He said, I intend to. <laughs> I love this stuff. I know it makes people anxious and nervous. It's too bad. Too bad for you. Wake up. You want to be wise? You got to lean into this stuff. That's what it means. So we come to the midlife of Solomon. Look at 1 Kings 11. He had 700 wives, royal birth, 300 concubines. His wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. So can you do the math with me? 700 wives and 300 concubines. Some, someone said porcupines. Uh, <laughs> 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's 1,000. It's 1,000 wives. Let me tell you what that is. That is exactly 999 wives too many. 999 more than you need. 999 more than is prudent. 999 more than is wise. Now, I'm sure he rationalized this at the time because most of these wives came from other, uh, other families of surrounding countries. You know, you, you create these military and political alliances with families when you intermarry. You know, the king's daughter marries the monarch in the other, in the other state. And so you can understand there's some political value to all of this. But these foreign women that Solomon married over the years eventually talked Solomon into building temples of worship for their foreign gods. And Solomon's heart was drawn away from the one true God. This is a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. So he violates the first commandment. So it's not just, this, it's just not the, the foolishness of having a thousand wives, which is incomprehensibly foolish, but that they distracted him from the one true God. So Solomon, Solomon's heart gets divided. And this happens to people all the time. This happens to me all the time. This happens to anyone who's trying to go through the world in some, some, some passionate, dynamic way, that you can get distracted and your heart can get divided. 
And this happens all the time. It happens every day. It happens every second of every day. This happens to Christian people, especially in the Western cultures where there's so much abundance and affluence. And we, and we, we come to believe, and it's, it's understandable why it can happen, because we have so much all the time that we've come to believe that, you know, I'm okay, and I really don't need any help. I've got all my ducks lined up in a row, and I can predict the future, and I feel secure, and ultimately, I don't even need God in my life. And so people's hearts get divided, and sometimes it gets divided over things that are material in nature, you know, and you start collecting things, or you start being attracted to things, and they, just, they divide your heart, or maybe it's a, a, an extra relationship that's just outside of the boundaries, and it's just wrong, and you... And you, and you play, you tiptoe around the boundary and you cross over the boundary and you come back and you cross over some more and it just, and it starts dividing your heart away from God. Or maybe it's some kind of cause or purpose, you know, that I, you know, I stand up for the rights of people who are disenfranchised in the world and, and I advocate for people and this is, this is why I exist and I feel passionate about, great. What about your relationship with God? And your heart can become divided over that. And this is what happened to Solomon because he began to think and believe about himself because he's a, he's a, he's a five-star guy. He looks in the mirror and he goes, I am all of that. Look who I am and look what I have and look at the status and the power I have and look at the influence I have and look how smart I am. And his heart becomes divided. And then it begins to show, you know, Solomon spent seven years building the temple. His daddy, David, raised the money for the temple, but Solomon is the one who actually built it, stone upon stone. It was magnificent, spectacular, one of the most wonderful buildings in the ancient world, the temple in Jerusalem. Phenomenal structure. He took seven years to build it. Yeah, we'll compare that to the 13 years he took to build his own palace. incomprehensibly opulent, over the top in every way. He makes a contract with the king of Lebanon who supplied the cedars, these big, these big uh, timbers that they built these structures in, in Solomon's day. And maybe you've heard the phrase, the cedars of Lebanon, you know, world-renowned for the quality of this, of this timber. And he makes this contract with the, with the king of Lebanon and after he, he, he takes the lumber and builds his buildings, he, he pays for it by giving the king of Lebanon some worthless piece of property. Here, I'm just going to deed all these acres over to you in exchange for the lumber. And the king goes, well, okay, I guess I'll trust you. And he gets a deed and he goes, checks out the land. It's worth nothing. He, he, he takes slaves from other nations and enslaves them to build these buildings. And then indentures his own people, overworks them all and underpays them all. You begin to see what happens to a, to a person who's decided that he knows better than God how to run his life. And his heart becomes divided. And these are just evidences of that divided heart. God warned him. When you look at it from the outside and you hear it, you hear it like this, you go, well, he, he's not wise, he's a fool. How's the wisest man in the world become the, the biggest fool in history? So we come to the end of his life. 
the end of Solomon's life, he wrote, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, but as you read it, uh, you will get a melancholy tone from the first verse. It is a sad book to read. And Solomon now is at the end of his life. He has been arguably the most self-indulgent human being who's ever lived. You hear the phrase, more of everything? He had it. More of everything, please. Name it. Education, intelligence, wisdom, power, influence, status, wealth, prosperity, abundance beyond comprehension, lust, sexuality, indulge. I mean, touch it, taste it, feel it, look at it, experience it. The, over the top in every category. Every category. When you hear it, you go, that sounds interesting. Uh, maybe I could do better with that. I'd like to have a shot at that. No, no. S Solomon in his wisdom, and remember God said there's never going to be a wise guy like him again. So in his wisdom, he comes to the end of his life. And the second verse of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, this is how he concludes it. Look at it on the screen. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Literally, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. One of the translations, vanity. Vanity, all is vanity. None of it amounts to anything. Everything has no value. Everything is meaningless. Wow. I don't know if that gets your attention, but it should. Most self-indulgent man in the world. Now, we started with the last scene of his life. Now we've heard his story. Let's, let's re return to the last scene. Ready? Look at it with me again. Ecclesiastes 12. This is the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is his last word to the world. This is the last thing he writes before he dies. This is, this is what he wants to leave with us. This is what he wants to say is ultimate wisdom. This is, this is what he reminds us. This is what matters most in life. Nothing else matters. This is what matters. If you want to spend your one and only life in a meaningful, honorable, God-faithful way, this is what it means. If, that, if you have the courage to hear it. And he writes, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's all that matters. That's it. That's it. Let me just remind you you came into this world naked and empty handed. So did I. Do I need to remind you how you're going to leave the world? Naked, empty-handed. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Hear the wisdom of Solomon. When it's all said, it's all done, everything's been said, everything's been done, everything's been heard. This is what, this is what matters most. 
This is my, this is my dying admonition from the wisest man who's ever lived. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Do you have an ear for it? Fear God. Keep his commandments. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we almost sense today that the same invitation you gave to Solomon is open to us. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Whatever you want, all I have to do is ask. The New Testament writer James in chapter 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault. He'll, he'll give it to you. Next verse, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts like a wave of the sea. Think about Solomon now. The one who doubts is like the wave of the sea. Think Solomon, blown and tossed by the wind, pulled and coerced by this and that and the other. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, unstable in everything they do. So now back to Solomon. So fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Now he who has an ear, let him hear. And the people said, amen, amen. Would you stand with us?